0: Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the mighty man boast of his might, or the wise man boast of his wisdom, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's what life is all about. Let's, actually, let's wait on this first slide until we're ready for that, Natalie, if we could. Um, yeah, so boasting in God, that's, that's sort of an odd concept, isn't it, to boast in who God is. Boasting is something we just always assume is wrong. It's wrong to do. There's actually a book that came out last year on boasting because it's a greatly misunderstood thing. We're commanded, actually, to boast in Christ, to boast in the greatness of God. To be boastful is not always a bad thing when it's exalting, you know, with a U, exalting, being lifted up by, declaring, proclaiming the greatness of God. That's what we were just doing as this exceptionally gifted band has been leading us in worship. We're exalting it out. We're boasting in who he is. We were just boasting in the greatness of God. In the first session, we were boasting in the goodness of God. And that's what we're called to do. That, that's a sta- There's nothing wrong, obviously, with wisdom. That We're supposed to pursue wisdom. But that verse is even saying it, that even wisdom, even having wisdom, needs to be traced back to knowing God. Because what does the Bible say? That wisdom is found how? In the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, And so the fear of the Lord is the result of knowing and understanding God. When you know him for who he is, that's when you gain wisdom. That's why it says, don't even boast in having wisdom. Don't boast in might. Don't boast in riches. Nothing inherently wrong with those things. It's saying, relatively speaking, though, what really matters, what really matters is knowing God, is understanding God. Now, that presumes two things, doesn't it? One, that there is a God to be known. And this God has definite characteristics. You don't invent God. You don't make up God. You don't get to come up with your conception of God. He is a God, and he's a personal God, and there's a way of understanding him that's right, and there's a way of understanding him that isn't. And we've got to realize that this God is And he's objectively real and true. And knowing him and understanding him is not only something that's possible because he is, but it's actually possible because he's revealed himself. And we have the capacity with the Spirit's enabling grace, depending on God's revelation, to know and understand God. We really have that ability. There's some people who think, yeah, God exists, but he's not knowable. And what we're saying is God is as he is, and he's knowable, and we actually have the ability to know him. We need him to know him, to reveal himself, to illumine our minds. Through his word that the spirit gives, the same spirit uh, enables us to understand him and transforms us. But understanding and knowing God is what life is all about fundamentally. And then everything else is, is connected to that. Knowing and understanding God is what life is all about. That's why when we go to the Bible, as we said yesterday, we need to go on a character of God hunt, constantly saying, who are you, Lord. Who are you? I love the way Richard's helping us think about who we are in Christ. And who we are in Christ will be entirely dependent on who God is in Christ for us. That's the fundamental truth that then leads us to an understanding of who we are. We've got to understand who God is, and then we'll be able to understand everything else. And everything else needs to be seen relative to knowing God. And that is when everything else gets its meaning. When it is relatively on the periphery compared with knowing God. And then everything else starts to take on the meaning it's intended to have. We were talking yesterday about God's amazing journey with with Moses, teaching him who he is. And we are expected to learn right along with God. I realized years ago in, in teaching that we have been taught maybe not explicitly, but all the time implicitly in our culture, that the only thing that really matters is firsthand personal experience. But there's an assumption in the Bible, fundamental to how we know God, that we are intended to learn about God personally and powerfully and and grow in the intimacy we're after vicariously. In other words, we are to read about, for instance, God's experience with Moses, Moses' experience with God, and we're to learn right along with Moses. There isn't this massive gap. Some people think history's irrelevant, that what has happened to others is irrelevant. No, the faith is passed on according to the testimony of the apostles and the prophets according to the scriptures, and through the witness and the testimony of the saints based on that first testimony throughout the ages. You know, I just love that we're at a camp that is the oldest, I'm told, west of the Mississippi. The witness and the testimony that's happened here through the generations is a powerful thing to ponder. But that's how the faith continues and grows. And you, if you're a Christian this morning, are a Christian because of the faithful witness and testimony of those in your life who spoke into your life based on the testimony of the apostles and the prophets we find in the scriptures. And so I want to challenge us to believe that we have the ability and God actually expects us to grow right along with Moses As he meets with God at the burning bush. I've seen him do that. I've seen him transform my life and the lives of countless others through this kind of vicarious faith development. And that's what we have going on here with Moses at the Burning Bush. So we saw Moses at the Burning Bush yesterday. We said that this fire is showing us the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the purifying effect of that holiness in our lives, the guidance of God, the the, the light he brings to us. And it's in this humble holiness revealed in a bush. And that is what we were talking about last time and that that this bush doesn't go away with the fire. The fire is revealing who God is, but it's in a humble holiness. And I said that this is God's MO. This is his, his way of revealing himself. That's the pattern of how God reveals himself. So when you think of God revealing himself in a way where his holiness is not diminished, his glory is not dimmed in the least, but it is nevertheless revealed in very humble ways, that are therefore accessible to us. Can you think of other examples in the Old Testament of God revealing himself that way? Can anybody think of any? Not a rhetorical question. (laughs) Examples of humble holiness, God revealing himself in humble ways, unexpectedly, staggeringly humble ways. Absolutely, yeah. Here's this man, as Richard so beautifully helped us think about this scoundrel Jacob. I mean, his name means the healed, the, the deceiver, right? And God meets with him. And in the midst of all his frailties and his sin and his, his fallness, he betrays his father. I actually, I was reminded, of, I was feeling guilty as Richard was talking about Jacob today and God's grace toward him because for years, I... I couldn't stand Jacob. I, I really I had the hardest time with him. I would every time I'd read his story, and there are so many times I've read through the Bible many times now. But there are many times I would start. So I, I've read Genesis probably more than any book because I was going to read through the Bible this year, and I got through you know Leviticus and then I, then I bailed. But but I've done it a lot of times now. But I remember Jacob. I hated Jacob. The dude swindled his blind old father with the help of his mother. I mean. I just, I I couldn't stand Jacob but I remember getting the gospel in a deeper way and realizing that an almighty holy God has amazing grace toward Jacob and he's got it toward me who has all that same conniving deceiving, self-centered attitude toward life and I realized oh man when I finally meet Jacob in heaven I'm going to have to say I'm sorry man I just judged you for years, right? Not realizing that you and I aren't any different. And I need God's grace just as much as you ever did. But seriously, man, how could you do that to your father? I, I, but I, 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 I'm going to have conversations like that, you know? But, but yeah, absolutely. So this amazing meeting, he's, he's on the run, he's, he's sleeping, and God meets with him, yeah. So God revealing himself to Jacob, of all people, right? In that situation. Other examples, excellent. What other examples in the Old Testament? David, David yeah, David. The, the, the prototypical king that prepares us for the Messiah. I'm going to climb in the pews in a second. So, um, <laughs> yeah, David. My man broke half of the Ten Commandments in that one blunder with Bathsheba. Half of them. I could go through them for you. But, yeah, he broke half the Ten Commandments. And he becomes the Messianic king as good as they get before the king finally comes in Jesus. Yeah, God meets with with David and he he, he uses David in spite of David. Yes, these frail leaders throughout the whole Old Testament, right? You know, every one of them, pick one. Pick one of them. Abraham, every one of them are these frail, messed up, sinful, self-absorbed, petty people, right? That God continues to meet with without compromising his holiness at all. How about the whole nation of Israel? Right? I remember I was reading this liberal scholar who doesn't believe the Bible's the word of God, and he said, how could anyone believe the testimony of a bunch of toothless nomads? And this guy would have prided himself on being tolerant and multicultural and all these things, right? But, but yeah, to, and, and you know what? He's right you know Jesus I'm sure didn't have all his teeth in his mouth right so I don't know what you think wisdom comes from or what it what the source looks like but he's right toothless nomads does does the wisdom of God come through people who don't have a home and are messed up it it does see that's how God works over and over again without compromising his holiness at all. So the whole nation of Israel, and Israel was constantly forgetting this, weren't they? God always has to say, wait, 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 time out, time out. It seems you've begun to think that the reason I chose you is because you're all that. It it seems that you must think I chose you because you were so numerous. Were you numerous? No. You seem to think that I chose you because you were so great and awesome. No. I found you and you were a complete mess, right? And that's true of all of us. And so we fast forward to the New Testament and the ultimate display, the ultimate display of humble holiness is in a baby, in a manger, born to a couple who are on the run, a poor couple, who as we'll see a little later in, in say Luke 2, they didn't even have the, the money to pay for the normal lamb sacrifice. They went with the concession of a bird sacrifice. And that's how he's born, with, with, within the stink of manure, with nowhere from the beginning to lay his head. That's God in flesh. That's God most clearly and definitively displayed in all of human history in a baby in a manger who becomes a humble carpenter from a nowhere village called Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what is said of his hometown. You see, if you don't get the burning bush where his holiness is on display without it being diminished at all, In an incredibly humble way, you'll miss the Christian revelation as God normatively does it. You'll miss it. Let's go to his disciples. You know what he calls them more than anything else? What term he uses for them more than anything else when you add them all up? Ye of little faith. They were a messed up crew and, and, and a, a, a motley crew too not the band the, 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 the collection of these men he put zealots together with tax collectors they couldn't hate each other more than they do yeah he needs to go to a strate- strategic or Jesus needs to go to a strategic organizational leadership seminar to learn how to put teams together because he, he, he didn't apparently know how to do it according to the world's economy you see Then the whole church, us, the people of God, right? Broken vessels, good for nothing until God gets a hold of them. You see, humble holiness is how God does it. And I think maybe of all the cultures in the history of the world that have tried to express Christianity, maybe the American society has the hardest time with that were so obsessed with impressive, successful, shiny, on the outside displays of importance. And Jesus comes and, and just turns all that on its head. Now, I want you to notice something here. When we see humble holiness show up, You think as Moses does, well, either the the, the holiness needs to be tainted or extinguished or the bush will be completely consumed. And he says neither of these things are happening. So the fire doesn't go out, the bush isn't consumed, but what is the effect? What does happen? Talk to me. What does happen? The bush isn't consumed, the fire doesn't go out. What does happen? Did you see it? Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. The holiness isn't diminished. The bush isn't consumed. The bush and even the ground around it take on the quality of holiness. So not only can they coexist, they have a purifying Sanctifying effect On everything around And that Most fundamentally Has an effect On the people of God Do you know what Christians are called more than anything else In the New Testament Hagioi Saints Holy ones Individually hagias. A saint I, I think one of the actually tragic turns of language in the church through the centuries is and it's not even just in, in Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox. It, it's actually even invaded the way Protestants talk. We've reserved the word "saint for a special elite class of Christian. If we speak the way New, the New Testament does, Ian is St. Ian and St. Richard, and St. Donna. There there is a a holiness now that identifies the people of God. And the holiness of God then is something we need to fundamentally understand. The the holiness of God is a profoundly important attribute of God. We've got to understand. And I I, I just don't have time to, to do what we need to, but you've got to understand how massively, biblically comprehensive this attribute of God is. Just look at just a quick sampling of examples in the Bible. Look at all the times it shows up. Now this slide now, if we could. Listen to, to 1 Samuel 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. How cool is that? So we're using words. We're using attributes, holy. We're using images, rock, right? we're we're using several of these different ways God's getting at who he is that we talked about yesterday. Isaiah 40, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. The major prophets, the historical ones, the minor prophets. "I, I am God, not a man, the Holy One among you. All the way to the end of the Bible. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. Do you know that The Father is called the Holy One of Israel. The Son is called the Holy One of God and the Holy and Righteous One. The Holy Spirit is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Do you know holiness is the only attribute of God that is three times repeated? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's it's a massively important attribute of God. And it's the holiness of God that puts Isaiah on his face and says, woe is me. So we see here that self-understanding. Now Richard said that, that you will never understand who you are in Christ until you understand that you're broken, that you're sinful, that you've got a sin problem that only the grace of God can solve. And that brokenness is an awareness you come to in light of the holiness of God. Isaiah sees God in all his holiness. The train of his robe filled the temple. And he does not say, cool. <laughs> he does not say, oh, that's interesting, with a detached academic beard stroking. No, he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's who he is. So if this attribute is so massively important, actually, theologians say that this kind of isn't even an attribute of God. It's this meta-attribute, this meta-way of describing all of who God is. So we better know what it means. You know, we've said God is great, God is good. It's amazing how, as I said yesterday, how seldom we actually define all these words we use. Like, we often say God is good. And it's true. And we said that this morning. We proclaimed it in our singing, in our words this morning. God is good. But just start asking people, isn't God good? Yes, he is. What exactly do you mean by that when you say it? And you'll say, oh, uh, I've never actually thought about that before. I guess it means he's not bad. And it's, that's about as far as we'll get sometimes. But, but to have some substance to these definitions, like to say God's good, here's a, a good working definition. It, it means that all God is and all he does is always worthy of complete approval that means anytime you see god or see him do something he deserves a standing ovation every time that's what that means and the second part of the definition he's the final standard of goodness he determines what's good it's amazing to me how, how more more frequently my young students will come to me and they'll, they'll feel this complete freedom and saying I could never and will never worship a God who X, whatever. As if they come with their God agenda, their God portfolio already in place, and God better match up to it. You know, Richard was saying this morning that we we need to go to the Bible and sometimes have our entire paradigm just challenged. I'm writing a book right now called 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. Um, and one of them is, as, as sort of the standard of truth, that really resonates with me. Now, I know, know what that means, and I'm glad things resonate with me sometimes when they, they accord with truth, but it's almost as if that was a good worship service because it resonated with me. That was a good sermon because it resonated with me. You know what? I want to go to worship sometimes. I, I want to go to the Word sometimes and, and have a dissonance. That's what Richard's saying. He said, look, don't go to the Bible just expecting to be affirmed all the time and how you already think. Sometimes God should defy your inclinations, intuitions, expectations, and he does it all the time. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, godly, wise people are saying, Lord, why? How much longer are you going to let this go on? It's that we heard about this morning, it's, it's, Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. And then we don't then say, so I can not worship you. Because you are not like I, I want you to be. I want a more user-friendly version, thank you. And, and you're just not very user-friendly. <laughs> and so we're, we're needing to have this definition in place, right? So here's a good definition of the holiness of God, right? God is absolutely... And uniquely excellent. He excels, in other words, beyond everything in creation. And this is unique to him. This is one of those attributes you shouldn't try too hard to find an analogy for. Because there really isn't one in creation fundamentally. Now, God brings about the quality of holiness in created things with his presence, but when we start with this definition of God's holiness, it means he's absolutely and uniquely excellent above all creation. I don't say separate. Words are the tools of the theologian, and so we need to be careful with our words, right? We need to use the right words. Separate will imply something we don't want to imply, but above, yes, And that's his majesty. And there's another aspect to his holiness, which is is his moral purity. So let's just unpack these two aspects of it. His majesty, his majestic holiness, in other words, is God as king. God as the excellent, royal, magnificent king above all kings, Exodus 15. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You know, I, I'm just, I, I love studying culture. so I so enjoy Richard's preaching. He's, he's, a, he's a cultural exegete, right? He's thinking about the context in which we're living out our Christian lives, and helping us think about that, so we can compare and contrast with the biblical worldview, right? But, but it's it's royal. The concept of royalty is fascinating to me as an American because we have about as anti-royal an instinct as Americans can, right? We hate royalty on the whole. The whole. Uh, uh, American experiment started as a revolt against the king, right? And do you know how intentional it was the founding fathers came up with the title that we, they came up with for the president? You know what it is? Mister. <laughs> That's what we call our president. Same thing you call the Farmer. Because we're not going that royal route, your royal highness, we're not doing that, right? And Americans sort of have this great aversion to any putting on airs, or you think you're better than I am just because you've got a different job, and we just love the common man, right? We love that, but we are obsessed with Harry and Meghan. We just can't get away from it, right? If I never see one more article about Harry, I I hope God's blessing on them. Don't get me wrong, but who cares? (laughs) Why in the world do we care what Harry and Meghan are doing? My mother got up when she was a little girl at at, at, uh, like three in the morning to listen on the radio to Queen Elizabeth's wedding. And so we can't get away from it. And, and what I want us to do is have a, an understanding of royalty that is from the Bible, that has a place for a king, a king of all kings, the king who made every other king. That's why it's so great that, I, that Isaiah passage in Isaiah 6 begins with, And the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah was a great king for a generation, for 40 years. He was one of the good ones. Most people couldn't remember a time when King Uzziah wasn't on the throne. And he says, in the year he croaked, I saw the Lord, contrasting the two. It's not an incidental historical detail there. And so this king, this majestic king, is the one we worship. And so his majestic holiness is something we need to come to grips with. And then you add to that his moral holiness. Now, here we do use the word separate. God is separated from all sin and evil. Isaiah 5. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. God determines what is righteous. God is always acting in accordance with what his character determines is right and good and just. And we need to hear this because, again, this deification of the self is giving people the idea, the same idea Adam and Eve had in the garden, that we get to determine good and evil for ourselves we will take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and determine that for ourselves. And what happens is the Bible says you don't know the difference. You need to have your senses of discernment trained, Hebrews 5, to discern good from evil. You don't boot up knowing the difference in this fallen world. And you know what happens if you can't tell the difference? Eventually, if you don't go to God to know the difference, you start calling evil good and good evil. And those who are Who are standing for goodness are considered evil, and those who are standing for evil are considered good. We have so many examples of this in our society. So, God is majestically holy and morally holy, and this is glorious to know about Him. So, God is just who we want Him to be, just who we need Him to be in all of this great holiness. And we need to learn to see Him in His holiness. There's some attributes of God That are our favorites Another chapter in my book is This is going to cause a big stir People are going to be mad at me for this one But I I don't think we should keep saying This is my favorite verse This is my favorite book it my favorite passage. Now, I think what we really mean by that, which is what we should say, and I'm all for saying, is God has powerfully used this verse in my life. There was a time in my life where this, this passage saved my life, where the Spirit used this to, to completely open my eyes. Th- that's great. That's how God does it. But favorite language, ah, it sounds like ice cream choices, right? Which will invariably mean there are less favorite verses and books, and chapters, and, and some books never get asked to the Bible prom, right, and, and, and so, so I have a real heart for those, those poor verses in Bibles that never get in the, the baby's new Bible, right, I, I'm concerned about this, this that's my fave, I uh, don't like that one so much. No, no. I, I'm, I'm a Psalms guy or, or whatever it is, right? James is my man. No, it's not. Come on, let's, let's. The whole counsel of God's word, right, is how we need to get at this. And holiness is one of those attributes that we, we need to love and not have some favored list of verses and passages and then, therefore, attributes of God that, that are our faves. <laughs> It's, it's not like in your phone. You don't get to have favorites in there, right? So, so let's, let's just quickly think through some implications. The first thing of God's holiness I want to think about, in light of God's majestic holiness, we should feel very small. Christians are those weird people who pursue a, low, a smaller and smaller view of ourselves in light of the greatness of God. Um, so after college... I signed a contract to play football, American football in Europe, but I had nine months before I had to be there, and so I decided to hitchhike all over the country. That's what I did. Again, not recommending it like I'm not recommending not turning off the electricity. I'm not recommending anyone hitchhike. Please don't get mad at me because your 19-year-old your son heard this, and now he wants to. It's his choice. So, um, so I hitchhiked all over the country, and I hitchhiked up to Alaska, and My brother was living in Fairbanks, and I got, it was first week of September, and it was snowing already, and I said, Carl, he'd lived there 18 years, I said, Carl, why do you live here? And he said, oh, because here I feel small, (laughs) And I, I, the next week, I saw Denali. It was one of those clear days where you saw the, the highest. It's good to feel small. You know, in the suburbs where I live, it's so easy to feel big. Look at me. Got my big SUV, my big Trent of coffee. Look how big I am. You ain't big, right? And it, but it's, it's easy to think you are when you don't run into, you know, wildlife very often. I'll never forget. My wife and I have done a lot of hiking and mountain climbing. Well, I was reading a, a book on encountering wildlife. And I will never forget the moment. So on this page of this book I'm reading is what to do when encountering a mountain lion. It was really, it was fascinating. It said, if you see a mountain lion on the trail, it said, make yourself big and try to actually intimidate the mountain lion. And then it said, and if you're unsuccessful and the mountain lion charges, do you know what it said to do? Fight it, fight the mountain lion. Now, your chances aren't good, (laughs) but you stand a chance. The next page, friends, was what to do in encountering a grizzly bear on the trail. And I couldn't believe how different it was. It said, if you see the grizzly bear on the trail, Make yourself small. Do not establish eye contact. Shuffle off the trail as if to say, this is yours, sir. You may have complete access, right? And then I'll never forget what it said. It said, if you're unsuccessful and the grizzly bear still charges, I'll never forget these words. I have them memorized forever. It said, if the grizzly bear charges, (laughs) drop to the ground in the fetal position to minimize the trauma that's what it said. To minimize, so hopefully he'll just play with you for a while, right? And you hope it's not a mother with babies nearby, and then that won't the trauma won't be minimized, right? I thought, wow, how different. Because with the mountain lion, you stand a chance. Now that is a very poor illustration, but I'm using it anyway for what I want to say about God here. Because it's a good illustration, because one, you can't run from God Jonah should have known better and Jonah is a fascinating guy who runs from God because he runs from God and um, and it's because he, he just doesn't like how gracious God is <laughs> like the Jacob story it's so interesting you know it's funny and people in the Bible don't get ticked off at how wrathful God is they get ticked off at how gracious he is it's like what the Ninevites no, no, I know, look, if I go to the Ninevites, and I tell them to repent, and they do, I know what you're going to do, you're going to forgive them, and I'm not interested in that, I know how wicked they are, and I need to remind you, I guess, of how wicked those Ninevites are, and so now, no, I'm not going to do it, you're way too gracious for me, you know, and that's throughout the Bible, right to the end of the Bible, when the martyrs are saying, how long, Lord, how much longer before you vindicate our blood? And by judging the wicked, how, how much longer are you going to let this go on, Lord? Right? They, they don't get upset with his wrath, saying, wow, what's your deal? It's, why are you so patient? What do you mean the sin of the Amorites is not into its fullness yet? In, Acts, in, in uh, Genesis 15. Well, what do you mean, he says to Abraham? The Amorites, their sin isn't sufficiently bad enough for you to judge them yet through us. Come on. And so his grace is just staggering to people. And in, in the, the smallness that comes with seeing the bigness of God is something we pursue. Because when we know God for who he is, we're not afraid of being small in his presence. We're not afraid of that at all. So second, in light of God's moral holiness, we should recognize our sin and impurity like we said Isaiah does. And like Peter does. You know, Peter sees the holy power of Christ And again, he doesn't say, whoa, cool. He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He sees his sin for what it is. And so we see our sin for what it is in light of his holiness. Three, we should fear the wrath of a holy God. The wrath of God is a natural and right and good and delightful in a very real way attribute of God. His wrath is necessary and completely logical and good and to be worshiped. We need to worship God for his wrath. Don't you want a God who hates sin and evil? Don't you you love that about him? I hope so. That's one of those attributes we're kind of embarrassed by. Sort of wish it weren't true. He should just let bygones be bygones. No, as we'll see in this Exodus story. No, blood sacrifice. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. The wages of sin is death because God is just and holy and righteous. And of course, look, if you love, you're going to have a corresponding opposition to what's destructive to what you love. If you love children, you're gonna hate child abuse. It just has to go hand in hand. And so we've got to understand God as comprehensively as we can, and when we do, we'll see ourselves for who we are, and we should, with a healthy fear, a healthy fear, (laughs) fear, the wrath of a holy God, and then delight in his holy mercy and put our trust in him. God is judging the Egyptians and Pharaoh for rebellion, for saying, I don't know this Yahweh, and I don't care what he says, and I don't want to know what he says. That's what he says to Moses. And God brings judgment on the Egyptians. And to evade that penalty of death, they put blood on the doorposts. And the angel of death passes over. And so we then should live holy lives. Listen to 1 Peter 1. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Holy. So now the saints, the holy ones of God, live holy lives. As Paul says in Philippians, live up to what you've attained. You've been declared holy. You've been made holy. And now live lives that reflect that new identity as the holy ones of God. Seeking holy lives and holy living. Where you are one set apart by God and for God. That's who you are now, and then he brings a presence in that holiness that we now have attained by his work that is awesome. Look look, look what happens next. Let's just skip down. He says, go to Pharaoh. Tell him you want to remove the entire foundation of his entire economic system. Go, shepherd boy, and do that. Understandably, Moses is intimidated by this, and watch what happens. The holy God promises to draw near. Verse, let's go to verse 10. Come. Verse 10 of Exodus 3. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And listen to what God says. Moses, you're the man. Nope. Moses, you got skills. Moses, may I remind you that you grew up in Egypt? You have all the necessary cross-cultural competence to do this ministry. No, he does not say that either. He also does not say, here, Moses, take this personality inventory, and you will see that you're a J-E-D-P-I, and that's the perfect personality for this job. He doesn't say, take this GEFS assessment survey. And you'll see you're perfectly gifted for this. He doesn't even say, take this test to find out what your Enneagram number is. And you'll see you're an eight wing seven, which is a perfect Enneagram score for taking on Pharaoh. Now, I am, I'm not minimizing the helpfulness that some of those things can bring. I'm not. Hear me. Don't get mad at me. People get mad at me for stuff like this. However, I am trying to put them in perspective (laughs) with a little bit of mocking for how much importance we put on those things relative to what God right now is going to say is important. And God does something with Moses now, which he does consistently because he loves us, even though we find it annoying mostly. And what he does is watch. He answers a different question than the one Moses asked. <laughs> I love this about God. Moses says, who am I? And God completely ignores his question and says, I'll be with you. This Hebrew word just for presence. I'll be with you. I, I, I'm, I, I got you. I'm here. I will be with you. And then he goes on to build on this. I mean, It's probably been more written on the divine name than any other biblical studies issue. I will be with you. And then he he builds this case of who he is based on being the God of the covenant, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the great I am, Yahweh, the God who's the God of eternity and the God of holiness and all of these realities. And he's the God who is holy and other and the God who is with and present and intimately working for the good of Moses and his people. And that's really the the first lesson he wants Moses to learn here is the ground around you is holy. And Moses, when I get a hold of your life, you become holy too. And you're able to do things you never would have been able to do otherwise, often in spite of your human frailties. I think we've completely misunderstood gifts in the Bible, mostly in the American church. It's what we're good at. It's the stuff that we're particularly talented at, right? So often in the Bible, a gift is what we do out of weakness, out of getting to the end of ourselves, not what we happen to be really good at. Now, once we're in it and God's enabling, it feels like we were made to do this, but not because we're so gifted and so talented, but because God is so amazingly working. In ways that humble us and continue to make us small, but then continue to make us feel amazingly, wonderfully used by God in the midst of all of that. So, so here's the point. The, the Christian life is one of realizing God's holiness. And now if we could skip to that diagram, the beginning of it now, I just want to end with this. So the Christian life begins with knowing the holiness of God, as we're saying. I think the paradigm we find in this burning bush, in, in, in Isaiah seeing the Lord, the holiness of God, we see God for who he is. So this is from our perspective, right? God, that's a theta, a little abbreviation for God. But we see God in his holiness, And then we correspondingly see ourselves in our rebellion, in our fist-shaking rebellion against God. And we realize there's a separation then. There's a gap between us and God. And throughout the Christian life then, there's a gap, right? Can we get that gap up there? There we go. And then from our perspective so we rebel against god he responds with righteous wrath and anger and judgment to our sin and then the christian life the life is progressing with knowledge of god is a progression in understanding his increasing holiness when you become a christian you do it because you see god for who he is in the face of christ to some degree i think you could define a christian as someone who's beheld the glory of god in the face of christ and is never the same and so, growing in holiness is an, an increasing understanding of the holiness of God. And when that happens, what else happens? We have an increasing understanding of our own sinfulness. The more holy we see God, the more clearly we see our sin. It's amazing to me. I'm 57, and I think about when I was, I don't know, 18, and I thought I had a pretty good handle on how sinful I was. I was clueless, I... I didn't mean I didn't have conviction of sin but there was so much more God was going to reveal in my heart still as a dad you know I didn't become a dad till early 40s and I was feeling really sanctified until then (laughs) I I was I was saying man I'm making some serious progress and then we adopted our daughter when she was seven and then another daughter when she was eight and another uh, and our son when he was six and our other son when when he was seven and I I started to see sin I had no idea was there as a man who should have been past all. So in my life, the most godly people I know have the deepest understanding of their sin. But see, this still isn't Christian, is it? So the Christian life is this increasing gap that we realize is there, but it's not Christian until what happens? Until that gap between the holiness of God and our sinfulness gets filled in by the cross. That's when it becomes Christian. See, there are other religions who have some high views of God and some pretty dim views of human nature, but the Christian faith fills that gap in with the cross. You know what our temptation is? Because we are created for intimacy with God, our temptation is to make him less holy than he is so he could ever hang out with us or make ourselves less sinful than we are so he'll hang out with us. But that's not how it works. That completely defies the very definition of grace in the gospel. See, we don't need to fear an increasingly holy estimation of God or an increasing reality about our own sin because we can be confident that every step of the way, the sufficiency of Christ and his work in his perfect life and sacrifice for us is enough. And so as God increases in our estimation and his holiness, and we count correspondingly understand our sin better, that cross fills that in. And every time we see that gap increase in our understanding, the cross keeps filling it in and filling it in. And the magnitude and the majesty and the sufficiency and the glorious grace of God gets bigger and bigger, and it fuels more heartfelt, passionate, dependent worship and prayer and devotion. It all starts with an understanding of who God is. And then we see ourselves, who are, and then we say, well, you look at that. Jesus is bigger than I had even realized. The cross is more sufficient than I had even realized. Jesus is more glorious than I had ever realized. God for us in Christ is sufficient. When he says to Moses and to us, I'll be with you, we find out that the way he's with us, most fundamentally and most importantly, is in Christ. And we find he's not just with us, he's for us. And that is awesome. God doesn't tolerate you. God does not put up with you. God isn't stuck with you because he made a covenant that he wish he could kind of get out of, but he can't because he's faithful, and he said he was, and there we are. That's how we are in our relationship so often, so we think that must be how God is. God loves you, and that means he likes you, and he's fond of you, and he sees you as beloved, as beloved as he sees the son at his baptism and at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God can't love you more than he does. I'm giving my whole book away. Another chapter of the book is I think we should stop saying I have to love you but I don't have to like you. That's part of the process on the way but that's not how God loves us. God loves us deeply and he loves us in the son and he loves us particularly. He's with us and he's for us and he's for us in Christ which is all we'll ever need Jesus in our place. Let's pray. Lord, help us to not fear your holiness in a way where we try to diminish who you are. Help us to have a healthy fear of you, Lord, where we'd never even think of running from you, knowing that's not even possible. Lord, would you give us a healthy fear of you that would do nothing but run toward you, knowing that you alone can save? that unlike that grizzly bear, you're the God who when we run toward you, you embrace us as a father welcoming the prodigal home, welcoming the repentant sinner home with joy and celebration and extravagant love and even a party. Lord, help us to know you as this God who in your presence we find ourselves undone, See our sin for what it is when we catch a glimpse of your holiness. And Lord, would you help us to pursue a greater understanding of your holiness and a corresponding greater understanding of our sinfulness. But Lord, every step of the way, help us to never despair. Help us to never think we've got to do more to solve our sin problem, but depend on that ever larger looming cross and the work of Christ and ultimately the person of Christ, his face in whom we see your glory.